This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. time this gets aired, it will be either a terrifically exciting moment or a big failure. We are riding on the edge close to the sun, but we are working with this amazing um, group uh, in Colorado called Gary Community Investments to think about how to bring the school system back. So if we're going to do it, and, and here we're on in it, it's to really do it right. And, um, and so the app will be rolled out as part of that overarching program. And we have a dashboard that goes with it that allows Uh, principals and teachers and state superintendents to kind of see what's going on and to catch uh, outbreaks as soon as they occur. That's Pardee Sabeti. Like many infectious disease experts, she knew something like COVID-19 was coming one day. But in many ways, she was already ahead of it. Her experience helping tame the Ebola outbreak of 2014 prepared her for the challenges posed by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And today, she's one of the hubs of a sprawling global network of researchers who are working to stop COVID-19 spread. Parties, this is so great to talk to you now. There couldn't be a more timely moment to talk to you than right now. And, and it's great that you could come back and be on our show a second time. It's absolutely my pleasure. And it's been a delight to get to talk to you Uh, in the times of quiet, and your voice is even more needed uh, in uh, times like this. So thank you. That's great. Thank you. Well, your your voice and your work couldn't be more needed now. You're so perfectly prepared because of all the work you did on Ebola. Were you ahead of the curve a little on this? Well, nothing is perfect about how we responded to COVID, including, and I can take that internally as well. Um, Historically, there's always been people talking about infectious diseases. And and uh, and it's, to me, kind of wild that we aren't more prepared, considering that if you look at the history of the human race, it's punctuated always by these massive events that decimate the human population, set back economies and civilizations. Uh, we know this. And there was nothing, there's nothing prescient about me thinking that infectious diseases were important. Um, and that's why there's a, you know, a, it's a too small of an army, but as such a uh, vehement, um, vocal army of folks who have been working in infectious disease trying to get more attention to this. Um, because at the end of the day, these infectious diseases cause more um, deaths every year and more economic loss every year than you know our modern wars and uh, pandemics have caused more deaths than even our great war. And, uh, but yet, uh, you see the military budget and you see the infectious disease budget, and there's no comparison. Well, what is there about this virus that makes it so dangerous? We've been we're attacked by viruses all the time, but that we've never gone through as a as a not just as a country but as a, a globe the way we're going through this. I don't think. What is it? What is there about it that's so different? This did hit a tipping point. Like, just it's not as deadly as Ebola, but it is a very fast-moving virus. And then the asymptomatic spread is that additional thing. It's the thing that makes it just move through the population quietly and get its legs. And then suddenly you're only aware when you're way behind the curve, right? And in each of these cases, everyone's been minding. Florida was down there being like, no worry, you got this. It's chill. We'll open up the the heat and the sunlight and everything and the beach life. This is why we're going to do fine. 
And then now look look at it, the, it's become the epicenter. But the fact of the matter is it sort of crept up on them and they didn't realize it was taking hold until it overwhelmed the healthcare system when suddenly all of these cases emerged. So I think that's that's the other piece. So it's like other coronaviruses, it spreads very easily. It's got that higher fatality rate that um, you know really concerns us because we all, we all can feel at risk and, uh, and individuals who are older in age can feel at serious risk. Uh, and then it has this asymptomatic spread where it can just blindside us. Um, and so all of that makes it more challenging. And then there was this mutation that happened early on. I, I think you were part of the team that documented that mutation, right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm part of one of the teams. There's a number of teams. I think it caught a lot of people's attention when it emerged. And so Jeremy Lubin and I, uh, he's a uh, terrific professor at UMass Worcester. And um, he and I had partnered up, our teams had, kind of at the tail end of the Ebola outbreak. Uh, we had noticed a number of mutations in the Ebola virus genome, um, and particularly in the glycoprotein that's a cell receptor that, that is sort of binds to the, the human cells and mammalian cells and enters. We noticed a mutation that had a lot of properties that made us think, hmm, that doesn't look good. That, that, that looks like it could have a biological impact. And we also noticed that it emerged and really rose to prevalence very, very quickly, that, that as soon as it kind of came on the scene, every virus that we saw after that had carried that mutation. It made the virus much more infectious. And so kind of our, our conclusion was that as, this vi- as the virus Ebola was having more human-to-human transmissions than ever before, it was improving in its ability to do so. So fast forward to February 2020, and Jeremy calls me, and he's been doing what, what Jeremy does, mi- mining the databases and staring at mutations and thinking about the biology. And essentially, he was like, there's this mutation in the spike protein, and darned if it isn't another one of these. You know, it just, everything about it looked uh, concerning, um, just where it was in this part of the virus called the spike protein. And that's the thing that sticks to our cells that enables the virus to do its work on our cells, is the spike. Yeah, so the yeah. spike got improved. You know what? What we're seeing is that it looks like the virus has become more infective. It's almost like in every population that it's in, that the mutation has increased in frequency. And other data that that Jeremy and others have have, uh, have generated have shown that the virus seems to be more infectious. It's able to, you know, infect different tissue types uh, better. So that's how it can not only infect the lungs, but your liver, your brain, all the things that, you, that it didn't seem to in, infect originally. Is that right? That's the other big question is we don't totally understand um, you know, how, how it might be having an effect from a pathophysiological level. And, and I guess all of this is to say these are early days. This is moving fast. Like February, it's now July. And this virus, as far as we know, in our, in our recorded history, has never had this many opportunities to transmit from human to human. And the problem is with every one of those human-to-human transmissions, that's yet another opportunity for a mutation to happen. So there's a quickening, right? There's a quickening that happens where there's the virus gets out and there's more and more of it. And then with every and all, with each and every one of those transmissions, there's another opportunity for another mutation to happen on another mutation. And, 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 so, and each of those mutations has a chance to hang on and supersede the original form. If it's more, if yeah. it's more successful, then it, it it grows rapidly. Yeah, that's right. And you know, people always talk about, oh well, you know, the but virus doesn't want to really kill us all off because they want to, you know, they always kind of do that sort of like viral thinking, like what does the virus want to <laughs> yeah, do? And yeah. the virus would rather be more safe. And I was like, 
that's assuming, you know, the, the virus is, a, is thinking and we, we, I can't evolve myself to be taller or whatever, you know, like I can't will myself into it. It's just, it's a random events. Um, and so any random event can happen. Yes, that random event can happen to make the virus less um, deadly. And that, that also, you know, does happen. But I think viruses think more like teenagers than wise old people. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, more that, there's more humans where that came from. So it seems to me that early diagnosis is really important so you can cut down on that huge population that skyrockets with or without mutations. If one person can infect three and each of those can infect three, it gets into the hundreds of thousands pretty fast. So you've been doing really interesting work on early detection so absolutely, I'm all about, um, that is definitely, I, I ascribe to sort of the, the, the importance of detection and the importance of diagnostics. And so several years ago, probably around the Ebola outbreak where I became invested in learning a new thing. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm mainly a computational biologist and I can do genomics and I can do different things, but I, I uh, kind of got into another area and started really looking at diagnostics. And then I had a terrific postdoc and graduate student in my lab that I always like to do shout outs to the people I work with, Cameron Mirvold and Catherine Freehe. They kind of came on board and there's a new technology called CRISPR-Cas13. What could Cas13 do that Cas9 couldn't do? First of all, for anybody who hasn't been up to date on this, it's a, it's a gene editing tool, right? You can, it goes in and will, as if it had a pair of scissors and snips out the part of the DNA that you want to take out and can put something else in. Right. Yeah. So, what is thirteen? What is thirteen so good at? Well, yeah. So, and I, I'll just kind of go back for one second, also to say about CRISPR. Is that's how people know it, right? They know it about the gene editing technology, and we, they know about the fact that it can be used in molecular biology and it could be used in health. But CRISPR, it was identified in nature in bacteria as a bacteria's immune system to viruses. So, bacteria also can get infected by viruses, and so to protect themselves. They have this really beautiful mechanism by which they can detect viruses. They can detect a sequence of a virus and then they cut it. But its function in nature is to detect and to destroy viruses. And so it's a perfect diagnostic. Uh, but it's been hard in, to, in practice to use it as a diagnostic because uh, that cut happens and then how do you know that cut happened, right? And so Cas13, different from Cas9, has this interesting thing that it has a very specific cut. So it needs to find the exact sequence. It needs to have a target to cut it. But once it does, it then kind of cuts other things as well. And you can use that other things to basically attach a fluorescent probe that is connected to a um, quencher. And so if the well, cut sorry, happens, connected the connected to a what? A quencher. They call What's it a, a quencher. quencher? So it's, you stop your you know, work you, and have a beer for a while? What is that? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, you quench your throat, your thirst, you're quenching the fluorescence. So it's basically like, imagine there's a fluorescence and there's something that's sort of stopping it from signaling. And then you cut that off and then the signal can happen. So all of that to say, it's sort of a, and sorry to get into the weeds of it a little bit, but it's very cool. I mean, this is how biology happens is there's just really neat little, you know, features and then trying to think about, okay, how would I tinker with that and make that turn into, so they turned it into a diagnostic. They said, okay, it cuts different things. Let's, let's attach it. You know, let's, let's pair with it a fluorescent and let's make sure that fluorescent is covered. And then let's let it light up. If, if that, if that cut happens and the quencher comes off. What, what's amazing to me about this is that, is this the diagnostic test 
that can diagnose various viruses, not just one? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it, it, like, you know, any one of these tests, like PCR and other things, can can be used for lots of different viruses. But usually it's just hard to test for a lot of different things at the same time. Um, so here we actually bring microfluidics into the mix, and it's... Micro, you bring micro, what? I'm sorry. Uh, I, 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 I got yes. to <laughs> stop you if I don't recognize the word. Microfluidics. No, I'm, I'm glad you did that. Microfluidics, so just... So micro, tiny, fluid, you know, uh, fluidics, fluids. So it's like tiny little droplets, tiny, tiny little droplets. Ah. Uh, it's basically this this uh, set up by my colleague Paul Blaney and his postdoc Sherry Ackerman were driving this work, on working with Cameron. Um, essentially what they did is they, um, it were, uh, Paul and Sherry and, and their uh, team, another great graduate student named Jared, we're building uh, this technology that allowed you to do 64,000 little experiments side by side. And, and CRISPR, that whole system, could work in such these tiny volumes and have such a powerful signal that we're able to use it with this system um, uh, in these 64,000 plus wells uh, that we did. We had to do a lot of replicates to get, the, the, get it right. Um, we essentially showed that you could do 5,000 tests at the same time. So I, I, give, you, I give you a sample of what? Uh, spit or blood or what? Uh, it depends on what you're looking for. So any any of those things could work. You could do it. And as, you do um, five thousand tests at once. So if if I don't have one thing, I might have another. And you can tell me what I got. That's amazing. Yeah, and you usually like it's also like um it's a matrix. Like you could do um you could do you know one person with five thousand um uh, tests, or you could do two people with twenty five hundred tests, or so you can you can basically kind of decide how many people you want to test versus how many things you want to test. And so like, it might make more sense to do 50 or 100 people for a smaller number of tests. And, and so right now we're working on trying to get something through FDA that allowed you to test for five or 10 different things, but for hundreds, hundreds of people at the same time. And so we're, we're trying to sort of say, we want to increase the throughput of how many people we can study, but we also don't want to just test for SARS-CoV-2 because particularly when we get into the fall, uh, there's a lot of other things that are circulating. And, and I, you know, I can tell from experience that if you tell somebody in the middle of COVID that they are sick, but they don't have COVID, that's not very sad. Like that is not very reassuring, right? Mm. They want to know what they have. They want to know I have flu, that I have RSV, I have an enterovirus. Like, so it's really important to know what other things are co-circulating that could also be confused with SARS-CoV-2, so we can just get better at better at finding where the SARS-CoV-2 cases you are. Bring up a, you bring up an interesting question that I don't think I'd, I'd thought about before. If I have a mild case of COVID or, or a mild case of any other virus, am I more susceptible to being infected by COVID or another virus? You know, uh, so we don't know that about COVID. Um, we, we've, there, there've been some evidence of co-infections when we're looking at, like in our homeless populations, we see more evidence of co-infections, but not a whole lot, not enough to really see, see, say any, there's any sort of trend here. So nothing significant is popping up. Um, but you know, viruses are funny. They can go either way. Like it, it it's interesting because in like in the South America, um, you'll also often see like there's dengue one year and chikungunya one year and Zika one year. And usually these viruses compete with each other. And, uh, and then there are times where basically all 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 versions of this can happen. It could be one that like one virus knocks out another virus. It could happen that one virus protects you from another virus, and there's evidence of that. And then there's ones where having the two will make you more ill. And so there's really not that much um, 
you know, that we know about that, but that's mostly because we're just not testing for those other viruses. If we tested for other viruses more, we would get to see, um, uh, you know, what, what those interactions are. Testing seems to be important for many reasons, but in, in terms of the whole population, it seems to give you a chance to do contact tracking without which you're going to be in big trouble because you can't get you can't get ahead of it. You just keep picking up after it. Absolutely. But you've you've been doing some work on contact tracking, right? I have, yes. You can't be an infectious disease and not recognize the importance of contact tracing. These are infectious diseases are infectious. They are they move from person to person. If Susie down the hall at the office had flu, there's a higher chance you had flu too. So we need to know that too. And so Basically, during the, the um, mumps outbreak that was happening at Harvard, we were tracking it using traditional epidemiology and then also genomics. And genomics are interesting because they are a barcode of the virus and they can tell you, did this person likely transmit to that person? It's almost like it's telling you, like, it, yeah, if Bob and, and Bill went to the same concert, they, yes, they did indeed have the same virus. So, so the genomics was telling us that those contacts are really, it's quite, that's, that's you know, quite powerful. That is, there's not some mystery way you're getting it. You know, it was Janice down the hall. You know, it was uh, Bill in your classroom. Like that's, that, that's often right. But what it also showed you was you were missing 90% of the contacts. Um, There are lots of links that were missed in the tree. So at that point we started working on, um, I basically started, it was studying Harvard and we, we, we created an epidemiological model that showed um, how the virus was spreading in in the populations because we had a lot of really good detail there. And Harvard is very, I say Harvard's the best place in the world to do an outbreak surveillance system because they're so afraid of ending up in the New York Times that they will track every single sample (laughs) and case. It's a terrific, it's it's where their risk mitigation becomes very useful. They're great in pandemics. When we come back, Parties tells me how what she learned from that mumps outbreak at Harvard helped her team develop apps that test for and trace COVID-19 infections. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. 
If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's patreon.com slash clear and vivid. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. 13 pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Party Sabeti and the apps she's helped develop that aim to stop COVID-19 outbreaks in their tracks. Yeah, we created a few different apps, um, but one set of major apps that we're developing are ones that for citizens to allow them to report in symptoms and then be able and then and then also share their contacts or their classrooms or their friends or use Bluetooth and all of those things were features of what we were developing. Um, but then to be able to get reports back of like, okay, um, uh, the, you know, you likely have this based on based on the symptoms, what's circulating in your region and the people you've been in contact with. And now you've mentioned Bob and Bill before. Do they actually report names or do they report addresses or are they anonymized in some way? Yeah, so the version that we're rolling out right now, um, the schools that we're working with all want to have all information, to have Bill and Bob and everybody known. But we also want to make sure, we're, we're, we're as we're rolling it out, want to make sure that there's we're building trust. And so... There's a private space where you can start putting in your own things and you can report it when you want to. Like, imagine a student doesn't really want you to know they have a little bit of a scratchy throat because they're afraid you're going to kick them out of the class. Um, but they, but we have to tell them, like, it's really important we all work together. But so they can kind of start tracking their symptoms. And then over time, at some point, if, like, the symptoms get worse, they may signal in and they may say, hey, it's me, it's Bill. But basically, uh, the way that the app works, the person can decide how much information they want to share and who they want to share it with. You may actually want everybody, all of your friends to know 
hey, I'm, I, I'm getting these symptoms, in case somebody has a clue and says, oh, you know what? I have those same symptoms and I just got diagnosed with RSV. Right? We, it's basically kind of this cooperative game to figure out what's going on. Our conversation that we're having now uh, is airing for the first time in uh, August. And that's, this is around the time that your, your app is going to be in, in operation. In a, is it in a school system? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So by the time this gets aired, it will be either a terrifically exciting moment or a big failure um, where we are riding on the edge close to the sun. But we are working with this amazing um, group uh, in Colorado called Gary Community Investments. Uh, One of the leads there is Mike Johnston, who is a former state senator and who's pretty beloved beloved, um, civil servant in, in Colorado. And he's been working with the governor, Governor Polis, and others to to think about how to bring the school system back. And they've really taken this sort of philanthropic support um, on the other side, and, and they're they're creating this um, basically a, a, a testing protocol with contact tracing, all of the different pieces to help the, the schools get back. Um, and it's a huge challenge. It's sort of one of these things of uh, should schools come back? Well, it's not clear. I mean, in a lot of these pandemics, school reopenings are uh, synonymous or you know associated with the rise of infections again in the second waves. Um, uh, but yet we've seen what it's like when schools aren't open and how much it affects the children themselves and first and foremost, but also their parents. And so we got it. We have to bring them back. So 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 if we're going to do it, and and here we're on in it, it's to really do it right. And um, and so the app will be rolled out as part of that overarching program. And we have a dashboard that goes with it that allows. Uh, principals and teachers and state superintendents to kind of see what's going on and to catch uh, outbreaks as soon as they occur. So I hadn't realized when in the discussion about going back to school, I was thinking of it in terms of going back to school under normal conditions, the old-fashioned conditions where you just jam them in a classroom. And they were talking about classrooms being too big already for other reasons, for academic reasons, but now jamming them all together. But this puts a new light on it. It makes it perhaps, if not less dangerous, at least traceable, so you could control it a little better. Is that the hope? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that is the hope, right? That that you can identify identify infections right away and stop them. Um, I have. There's different people are they're doing different approaches, but uh, like a lot of places are, um, including the Broad Institute I work, where they're doing terrific work. Um, uh, and it really helping communities do testing. Uh, but a lot of the focus for all of these schools, um, naturally, are we need to test all of our students. Like, that's all they care about is we're going to test all of our students. We're going to test them every day if we can, you know, our students and staff. But we're going to test our own community, and we're going to just test them every day if we have to. But in my mind, one, that sort of is, it's not kind of in line with what's going on. I mean, the the fact of the matter is, like, the students are usually themselves young and healthy and uh, you know, in, in many of these colleges, privileged, and it's a little bit, you know, it's a little um, myopic to, to to use all of these tests to test them, and and to test them for that they're generally all going to be negative uh, when we have all this this need for diagnostics that we're not meeting. But then also, it's just not really a way of keeping them safe. Uh, I don't think it's the best way. Uh, I'm a little counter to what a lot of people are saying in that that I don't really like all of this idea of asymptomatic regular testing you're actually going to get much better at very good hypothesis-driven testing. 
And you're also going to do landscape. Like, so the second you're testing a positive on your campus, you're probably already in big trouble. And so you're not going to keep the campus safe by just looking just at your own thing and saying, let me test, test, test. And it, and it doesn't feel right from the perspective of there's people all around you in your community who are suffering. The way you're actually going to keep your community safe is by doing all this landscape, looking beyond the horizon. What, you know, is there, is there COVID or right or, you know, is there, do any of my parents of my students have COVID? Do any of their coworkers have COVID? Do any of the people they go to, you know, do, do the churches they go to, our staff's families. So what you really want to do is actually create a cocoon, create like layers. Um, so we, we, uh, the, the app is called Scout. It really is this idea of the lookout. Like you need to be looking out beyond the horizon. And so the way we've framed a lot of how we're doing the app is that if you enroll and get the app, um, we'll, we'll allow you to quickly see what else is going on and who in your community is ill. But if you also are feeling that you have symptoms or you're concerned, if you signal in, we'll get you tested. And then that will feed more information to the whole ecosystem. And then the other part of that whole education thing, so we are building this summer, we're building a curriculum, a full curriculum. And we, uh, for the few schools that we're really working with, we're doing like a, the first week of school, um, uh, the first week of school, but when they return, it's all remote. And we basically want them to spend a week in boot camp for outbreaks. Like we want the kids to understand, like what is the epidemiological number? What is contact tracing? What is the diagnostic? Why does it matter? You're going to get, we need them to be awake. We need them to be our scouts. We need them to help figure out how to keep their community safe and to be invested in the outcome. It can't be punitive. It's got to be collaborative. And so that's the other big thing of why all of these things now I'm synthesizing come together is that. The education has to be there and, you know, and the understanding of what's going on in the diagnostics and the apps, they all have to come together in that right way to get this, you know, this broad view um, of what, what is happening. So you've got a clue that it might exist in that small population because you found one person in that population who's positive, And then you use that clue to find out how many others in that group are also so you will be testing people who are asymptomatic, but you'll be driven by you don't just do everybody asymptomatic, just the ones who are part of a circle of people among whom is someone who is really sick. That's right. And by the way, I haven't convinced everybody that this is the full strategy. So there'll be a lot of asymptomatic testing of just random people as well. Um, that's going to also happen. I'm just trying to drive the you know with with the the kind of app and all of this. I'm trying to drive more. At the very least, you can do, you're allowed to do that if you are also serving the larger community. I'm going to step back from my conversation with Pardis for a moment to give you a heads up on where our talk went next. Because to me, it was really amazing. While she was working on these real world apps to stop outbreaks, she helped develop an app for a middle school classroom game that simulates the outbreak of a pandemic. The amazing part is that months before the world heard of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the game called Operation Outbreak predicted with uncanny accuracy what's happened in the real world with COVID-19, including its ability to spread asymptomatically. The same time that we were doing the work developing these real-world apps to stop outbreaks, we were also teaching, we were, we were, sorry, we were advising, I should say, uh, we're the ones learning, uh, a middle school in Florida in Sarasota, um, the Sarasota Military Prep Academy. There was a terrific teacher there, Todd Brown, who is just like one of those, he's America's teacher. He was trying to do in a civics course, 
teach the kids about pandemics. And so he created a two-week module where he was teaching them everything about a pandemic. And we were helping him kind of think through that a little bit, but then also helping him do the end of the course. There's a like class-wide seventh and eighth graders, like 200 seventh and eighth graders have to basically stop the pandemic. So they play this game. We've been doing it for five years. And every year it's like the big event of the year. There's a pandemic that spreads. The teams break up. We have epidemiologists, clinicians, the military, the media, the government, uh, all sorts of body teams. And then they have this economic thing where they have to be doing something else at the same time to get points while fighting off this virus. And so we were playing this game. And we used Andreas, who Colubri, who would, who led this work in my lab, he used um, the models that he was developing in mumps and others to create a virtual virus that spreads via Bluetooth on your phone. <laughs> anyway, so... So they had a so real the virus. They, they did, and it's... Yeah, and, and the, the doozy of it was... Uh, I mean, one, like we 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 predicted immunity passports and protests and all sorts of things. Like you see everything, everything happens, even in low stakes, humans are humans and middle schoolers are, are you know, are, are tiny humans. Uh, but also that, um, yeah, but in the fall, Andreas wanted to make the game interesting, more interesting. So we'd been spreading a SARS-like virus because SARS is high on our radar and it had a reproductive number of two to three, which is like SARS. But we, but he wanted to make it harder, so he decided to spread the virus asymptomatically. And we actually have all this data, real data, from be, from before you know the SARS-CoV-2 ever jumped, of a virtual virus, the SARS-like virus that spreads asymptomatically, moving through populations. Like we have all these maps, and we could see how the virus spreads, and we could see like what can propagate it. And we also have implemented like people, the kids can wear masks. You can change your. Um, you can change like your parameters of uh, like infection by wearing a mask and you have to wear the mask to get the points. And there's all, there's all these things. So we can see, we can, we can try everything. We don't have to, uh, we don't have to wait for a pandemic and we don't have to wait for a pandemic in each of these middle schools to actually see what would happen. Were you, were you doing this before we became aware that COVID-19 was passing from one to another yeah. asymptomatically? That's amazing. You are, you already had a tool. <laughs> Yes, because we actually actually spread did did those uh, did a lot of those simulations in China, and we did them at conferences. And uh, so one version of it, I'm sure, like you know, some some listeners will think, "Oh my gosh, she's behind this all," and uh, <laughs> they were they were mapping this out and they were trying. Uh, but on the other side of it, it was like, yeah, we wanted to make the game harder for the kids, and we realized it would be harder if the virus could spread asymptomatically. So that's what we tried. And so yeah, we did that. We we spread a virtual virus. SARS-like virus with a reproductive number of two to three with asymptomatic spread in in middle schools and conferences uh, around the world before this spread. Something that I didn't hear in the things we've been talking about so far is whether or not any of the work you've been doing going to turn out, do you think, to be useful in developing a therapy or a vaccine? Any of the work that we're doing? Yeah. Um, well, the the data that the the entire genomic community is generating uh, on uh, on the sequence of the virus is very helpful towards developing diagnostics and vaccines and therapies. I mean, it, it just we you want to know all the diversity that exists in the virus, and you can use that towards developing therapies. We have been working, uh, Cameron and Catherine, the two uh, great trainees that I ta- was talking about that have taken on our CRISPR Cas thirteen work. Uh, have been leading, um, and now with a number of other terrific uh, folks in the lab, have been leading the use of CRISPR to as a therapy, right? Because I, as I mentioned, when it started in nature, 
when it was identified in nature, it's, it's designed to detect, diagnose, and destroy, treat viruses. And so we have shown that this CRISPR-Cas13 system importantly works well in mammalian cells. So it's known to work in bacteria. Does it actually also do cutting in, in mammalian cells? Does it do so in a way that doesn't destroy the mammalian cells? Uh, all of those things are true. It, it does. It seems to work really well. Um, and we've shown that it works on lots of different viruses. Uh, we, we, we studied it in influenza, in LCMV, which is a neighbor of Lassa virus, a deadly virus, and then VSV, another important uh, sort of uh, virus. And we showed that it worked well on all those three different viruses. Um, and, that it, and then we showed computationally that it could work in pretty much any, you know, most viruses. Um, and so we have all that going in a really great direction. And now we in the field have to really get it to work well in, um, in humans um, and at the right doses and all that stuff. So there's still work to be done there, but, but we are, um, we, yeah, so there's a lot of other, my, my lab is like this really fun place where there's, there, there, I also have an amazing postdoc, uh, Shira Weingarten Goodbye, I'll mention all their names, that, um, who's working on, uh, and there's lots of names I've, I've not, not mentioned, so I'm gonna apologize to everybody, but, uh, but Shira's you know, working on uh, trying to understand how to make, design better vaccines by really understanding how the virus is being presented to our immune system. And so we, we have a lot of, we're just really, we're tinkering. We're really interested in like every aspect of the virus. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, an, it's an encouraging place to end our conversation. <laughs> I could go on talking with you and asking you more questions all day. <laughs> I, I, I would ask you the seven questions that we always end with, but we did that the last time you were on. And, we and did. If any, I thought I... Yeah, I, I want your more questions. Those are terrific questions, though. They're uh, they're they're so good. Yeah, you, do you have a doozy for me before we go? Oh, a question. I gee, that's a good that's a good question to ask me. <laughs> well, the one the one that I don't remember your answer to. Okay. That I love I love to hear what people have to say. We know what your work is. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, I think it, you know what I, it was the same. It, it's probably the same one. It's uh like what is this life? What what do we? What is this? I mean, I, I you know, I, I can see where science takes us. I, I want to know where the metaphysics, you know, where, what goes beyond that realm. Like, who are we? What do we exist? Was it? What is this life? I just, I wish I knew. Like, where do people go when they die? I just, all of that. Just what is this thing that we're all in together? Uh, I really wish I understood that. I really do. Well, Maybe no, that's what I, makes it interesting. I actually do have a question I didn't ask you before. You're so busy now saving all our lives. What time do you have? Do you have any time left for your music? I do. Well, I, yeah, I mean, uh, I, it is one of the things I do. I, this time I feel like I really have very little time. Like when you're like, oh, you have to get a a quench. I'm like, I don't know. I like, I'm in, in a box. I'm going to go from zoom meeting to zoom meeting. And then I'm going to answer a lot of emails and I'm going to work on a bunch of papers. So, uh, but, um, but I am, uh, I find that, that these moments get me very musically inspired. And so there's a lot of, humming and singing, and, and I there may be a COVID song by the end of this. I can, I can see <laughs> okay, this. Okay, I can't wait. That'll be so, on my top 10 list. Okay. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Great to talk to you, Parties. Thanks so much for yeah. coming in. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. 
So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Party Sabeti is a member of the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with affiliations at Harvard, MIT, and the Harvard School of Public Health. For her work on the Ebola virus, she was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. She's also a co-founder of the biotechnology company Sherlock Biosciences, and she's the lead singer of the rock band Thousand Days. Although, as we've just heard, these days her music is pretty much mostly in her head. To learn more about Pardis, check out the Season 3 Clear and Vivid episode where she talks about her passion for math and how it led to her career as one of the world's foremost experts in detecting and tracking deadly diseases. Pardis' Twitter handle is at Pardisabeti, P-A-R-D-I-S-S-A-B-E-T-I. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with two prize-winning journalists, Lynn Schur and Ellen Goodman. They've created a wonderful new podcast series called She Votes, Our Battle for the Ballot. And it's just in time for the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. It's fascinating, timely, and full of wonderful stories. And when they came to a vote, it actually came down to one vote in the Tennessee state legislature by a guy named Harry Byrne. And on the morning that he is walking to the state legislature, uncertain about how he is going to vote, he gets a letter from his mother. And that letter from Fed Byrne, who is my heroine, says, <laughs> be a good boy and vote for suffrage. As he later says, I always thought it was a good thing to do what your to do what your mother said. <laughs> <laughs> the irony of that that in order to get the right to vote which most men didn't want them to have, they had to get men to vote for them and to vote for the right to vote. It's kind of nuts. Ellen Goodman and Lynn Sure next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>